Hey, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. Glad that you're here. My name is Brent. I'm the teaching pastor. We are on part two of a series we're calling Our Secular World. It's a summer series, and uh, I, I know uh, summer schedule enough to know uh, that there's a decent chance you missed part one. And so if you did, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. It's going to be a five-part series. So all five of the parts are eventually going to be up there. And any previous series that we did, I'll try and do a brief recap to kind of get you up to speed a little bit. But the idea is uh, that you and I live in uh, a secular world. So let's talk about the world that we live in a little bit. And by secular, um, we just mean, secular is a term that just means non-religious, right? So it's not, it's, it's a non-religiously oriented world. It's become something that's like not anti-religion. Secularism isn't anti-religion. It's just kind of supposedly new neutral towards religion. And so uh, what does that look like for us? So I, I mentioned to you that there's been a, uh, a book that has been sitting on my shelf for uh, several years now that I've been meaning to read called The Secular Age by a guy named Charles Taylor. And uh, this book has kind of informed some of the discussion. There's going to be several quotes that are going to show up on the screen. They're going to be using words that are a little bit uh, difficult to write down, or I'll have to try and explain a few of them. So if you want them to kind of relook at them later, you can always text the word notes to, um, to 97,000 on your phone. There's a little note sheet on, on the bottom of that. It kind of explains how that process works, because I'm going to speed through some of those slides. You're not going to be able to write them down in time. But the essence of the entire series for five weeks, we're going to be answering this question or attempting to answer this question. Why was it virtually impossible not to believe in God in, say, 1500, uh, 500 years ago in our Western society, while in 2000, many of us find this not only easy, but inescapable? Why is it that 500 years ago, to not believe in a deity uh, of some sort, not necessarily Christianity, but just a deity of some sort, that there was a world beyond this world, um, would, would be like, you'd be weird if, it, if you didn't. And now we not only find it easy, but sometimes inescapable. In fact, nowadays we find that uh, uh, it's, it's not odd for us uh, to not believe in something. In fact, it's mo- for some people, it's very odd that you do believe in something. You have friends that are like, you go to this, why do you go to church? Like, what's the point of of that at all. So and I, I, worded the, I reworded the question in kind of in more an East-like friendly language. Here it is. How in a relatively short period of time, I know 500 years sounds like forever, but uh, in a relatively short time in terms of human history, uh, why, how did we go from a world where belief in God was the default assumption, you just defaulted into that, to our new secular world in which belief in God seems to many unbelievable? Because to some of the people that you work with and rub shoulders with and maybe you're related to and are visiting this summer, you went camping with them, it does seem unbelievable. It seems um, unbelievable that it happens and it seems unrealistic that you actually believe in this. And we said that this, uh, the world that we live in uh, can come to us, the answer to that question can come in the form of a narrative. Like there is a narrative that if I was to ask you, what does this mean? There would be an answer to the question. The answer to the question would be one of subtraction, essentially. Once upon a time, we believed in spirits. We, as in the human species, believed in spirits, fairies, and gods and demons, but as we became rational, right, through the enlightenment, through the advance of technology, through just common knowledge, and especially when we discovered naturalistic explanations for what we usually attributed to spirits and forces, the world became progressively disenchanted. We used to believe you got sick because you made some sort of God angry. You, your crops didn't grow and the rain didn't fall because you didn't make enough sacrifices to whatever God. Now we have realized the reason that you got sick is because you left food out and it has green stuff on it and then you ate it and that's not good and that does something to you. And we're like, I don't know exactly, but it has to do with bacteria. So like we, we, we know enough to know, but we're not exactly sure how that affects 
Texas, but we're like, it smells gross, it looks gross, don't eat it. So that's what I know. And that's naturalistic explanation. I no longer think that you pissed off the wrong God, and then now for, you know, therefore you're now sick. Diseases are not demonic. Mental illness is no longer possession. The body is no longer in soul. To talk about a body having a soul becomes this like controversial, kind of out there, kind of like... Uh, I don't know. I feel like kind of maybe when you die, it's like the on and off switch that we mentioned last week that Steve Jobs goes, I'm not sure what I believe. I'm kind of 50-50 on God. I think that I kind of am leaning towards like as soon as you drop out of you know, consciousness, then that's it. That's, that's, that's where it ends. This is the inevitable progress of magic to modernity. Magic, we used to believe in a world of magic, and now we have a life of modernity, a, a, a life where things can be explained. Everything important can be defined, described, or calculated. Anything that's not, someday will be. Science just needs to catch up to it first. And we no longer hear in the result of that, which it makes sense. Like all of that feels, feels right, right? I mean, for most of us, and we live in a very scientific community, Tri-Cities, uh, we see that. And, and for, for many of you, science is part of your like work life. And so you read that and go, yeah, I mean, I get it. Like I'm still at church and I, I think I can explain why. But we often... We oftentimes, it feels like that, that naturalistic explanations has replaced some sort of a faith thing for us. And we no longer feel, a lot of times, the need for transcendence. We don't need transcendence. What we need is more answers and more science and more this and more that. Transcendence, and I, I defined it a little bit last week, is this idea that there's something more that's out there, that's something more than I can see, touch, feel, or hear. Something beyond my five senses, I don't know what it is, but when I see it, when I feel it, when I read about it, when I watch those kind of movies, even when the movie goes off, there's like something about me that can't stop thinking about it. Thinking about, well, what about, well, why this, but why? A lot of times it goes into not how things work, but why? What's the purpose of it? What's the end goal? Why existence at all? What's the significance of anything that we do, right? And at some point it can be like, like maybe you just smoke something too much. But then for some of us, it's like, no, that's like we, it's not that. It's, I, I, I'm genuinely processing through transcendence above just the monotony of our everyday life. And there's not a lot of environments in our community, in our social life, where we engage in transcendence. In fact, uh, one of the only times for you may be those times when you come to Eastlake, and at the end of every series, we do a thing called communion, Holy Communion, Eucharist, Lord's Supper, whatever tradition of the church you grew up in, you know, it's like, all right, the, at the end, after the preaching, they play one last song, and there's usually some stations with some bread and some wine and some juice and all that kind of stuff, and you come forward, and then you take the bread and you dip it in, in the juice, and you realize in that moment, and I try and talk through it. I'm like, hey, this is supposed to be a transcendent moment. It's not like I feel like you all need a snack. Let's do snack time, everybody. That's not what I try and kind of communicate. This is us remembering something that took place. Like Jesus didn't give very many specific instructions to his disciples after he left. This was one of the few. And so we feel like we should probably do it once in a while, right? This idea of communion. And it's supposed to be a transcendental experience. Like I am participating in reminding myself in a very tangible way, using something tangible, but not, it's not like I need food. I'm just, I'm trying to remember what's going on for this. And even that sometimes feels weird. Even that, I, as, I'm, as I try and explain it sometimes, I feel the pressure to be like, listen, I, there's probably some people who are not familiar with church, so let me really explain communion, because um, I don't know what kind of environment you, bro- you grew up in, but in the Catholic Church, they believe in transubstantiation, so the priest prays over it, and then all of a sudden, that's the actual physical body and blood of Jesus, which is crazy, right? So it's okay, everybody. It's just wine. It's from Walmart. I bought it this morning. It's cheap. It's 
two rivers. Anyways, I don't want to go into brands. Sorry. Um, I, so I feel the need to explain it, to go, avoid transcendence, because I don't want you to think it's weird, because transcendence feels weird sometimes. We just, we try and avoid it in that way. We prefer the world that we can explain. We prefer the world that feels like we know what we can expect. I know it's expected. I know what comes next. It's a process. We've been there. We've done that. In fact, uh, the book of, there's a book in the, old, in the New Testament, excuse me, towards the end, um, Second Peter. It's a collection of of letters that Peter wrote to kind of his church, and he was the uh, kind of like the president or CEO of the early church. Um, and he wrote letters of recommendations, uh, not recommendations, excuse me, uh, letters of insights and thoughts, and, and, you know, don't forget this, and make sure you do this. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, he begins to talk about, listen, there are going to be some people who are going to look at what you do and the way that you do things and the way that you worship and question not only your motivations, but, wh- you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense. And specifically for them, this belief that Jesus is coming back, that he came, he ascended, but then he's, he's you know, on his, there's a return trip. It's a round trip thing. He's coming back at some point and we just don't know when. And they say in, in, in verse four, here's, here's what it says. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. That is a very flat, disenchanted world view where I know what to expect. Every year it's the exact same thing, Right? In June, we go on vacation. In July, there's boat races. In August, there's forest fires. And then it's just next year. And that's how this thing whole, this just works. I know what comes next year. There's not, it's not a lot of new stuff. I mean, I might go somewhere different on vacation, but I kind of like the stability that the Tri-Cities offers me in terms of that. And I know who I'm going to run into when I go to Costco on Fridays. And I know that it's all just kind of like progressively the same thing year after year. Some people might get sick of the monotony. I kind of enjoy it. This disenchanted sort of flat type of world or flat type of existence. How do we speak to people who feel that things are continuing as they have from the beginning and probably will continue to be from the beginning? Charles Taylor writes it in this way, a way of putting our present condition or our secular world is to say that many people are happy living for goals which are purely imminent, which is basically internal. I do it myself. I'm not taking my authority from anybody else. This is me deciding for me what's best for me. How do we go? uh, uh, People are happy living for goals which are purely imminent. They live in a way that takes no account of the transcendent. That's the reality that we live in. Um, When you set up goals for yourself, you you read about it somewhere, heard something about smart goals, and you're like, all right, these are going to be, shoot, can't stink and remember how the breakdown of the acronyms work, but I know one of them is measurable, actionable, relevant. I just can't remember S, which is the first one, which means I'm stuck. Anyways, we, we like those types of goals, but they're very imminent. They're very like within us. They're very tangible. They're very taste, see, smell, touch, feel, um, experience in that way. Not a lot of our goals fall into the category of transcendent because it feels too out there. It feels too different. Our quest now becomes this. In the type of world that we find ourselves waking up into, how do we discover meaning and significance in this progressively disenchanted world? And this is a struggle. This is where eventually everybody gets to. What is this all about anyways? Even the smartest people in the world and, 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 and uh, struggle with this, in this, which I believe a very flat, disenchanted world. How do I find significance and meaning in this? What is this all about? So this entire series has been an argument towards uh, addressing that narrative because 
it can feel, and I mentioned the subtraction narrative, it can feel very obvious that that's what it is. But you and I both know that history, your history, my history, has a way of feeling obvious in that moment. If you look back, it can become very obvious why America has succeeded into the nation that it has. Well, of course, it's democracy. Of course, it's this. Of course, of course that's going to happen. Of course, we're going to win World War II. And when, when you talk to people who live through it, when you read books or watch movies about people who went through it, it did not feel so of course. It did not feel so obvious. And it doesn't feel obvious for us in our current climate. Everything right now feels very complex. There's a high degree of complexity in where we're at as a nation, where our GDP and all this kind of stuff and all the tariffs and all the things and Trump, and Trump, 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 all this kind of stuff. It feels very, could go either way, could go either way here. And yet history feels obvious, right? The reality is in the moment we know there's a high degree of complexity involved in this. So perhaps this subtraction narrative isn't all there is. Perhaps the lines need coloring in a little bit more. That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's color in some of the lines, uh, if we will. Imagine with me 500 years ago, if we're talking this time frame, using this little time frame thing, imagine 500 years ago, a world that, no surprise, looks a lot different than ours. Uh, 500 years ago, uh, they operated not from a democracy standpoint. There were not elected officials. There was a king who was there because he was born into the right family. Right place, right time, positional authority. Tells us what to do, tells us how to live our lives, tells us when to pay taxes and how to pay them, and we don't get to say, well, maybe. I mean, you only have authority because I gave you authority because of my personal vote. No, it's not like that. It's a very hierarchical sort of authority in that way. More on that next week. We'll delve into that a little bit more. It's just the mindset of trying to get us in there. Okay, yeah, that is different. That is a different worldview. When you look at how the division of labor worked out in these industries, especially in the, in the area of religion and then uh, non-religious uh, vocations, what you had were people who chose religious vocations and then people who chose non-religious vocations. This, one's, this guy is going to go be a monk in a monastery. He's going to pray for the people and live the ascetic sort of lifestyle, uh, the renouncing all of the things that are like, you know, common day, everyday stuff. He's going to pray multiple times a day at certain times for us. I'm going to go be a cobbler in the streets, all right? And I'm going to support the monastery, and he's going to, I'm going to live vicariously, or he's going to live such a good life that I somehow am blessed by this Altogether, or this nun is going to go into this convent and she's going to live this life. And what we fail to see is that uh, in that society, monks and nuns did not go be- for personal selfish reasons. I feel like denouncing this. This is the lifestyle for me. They went in a, in place of not everybody can do this. We understand this. So how about we go do this? You live your life. You support this, and together we'll all be part of like you know the right church community. We'll all be living the way that God wants us to do. It's called a two-tiered approach to religion. And then about 500 years ago, October 31st, 1517, a guy named Martin Luther uh, famously, or, or, or uh, you know, the legend goes or whatever, nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel and basically said, the church as it is, right? Because there's no options there. It was just the Catholic church. And I'm not, this is not a slam on, on, on the Catholic church. It was the only game in, in town at that point. So he's trying to say, we've got some issues going on here. There needs to be a reforming 
of some of the ways that we do things. Known, it became known as the Protestant Reformation, right? The, the things are being done improperly, let's fix it. One of those things being we've adapted and we've accepted this two-tiered approach to religion. They'll be good because I can't be good, but what they do affects me. And he's like, that's not, that's not how it works. That's not how it should work. You remember this as a kid, right? I'm the oldest of four. I have three younger sisters. All of you oldest kids in the family, if you have younger siblings, you know what I'm talking about. Because mom would say, all right, kids, upstairs, everybody clean the rooms. And you as the oldest would be, you know, all right, let's do this. All right, so you are going to go here. You're going to go here. I'm going to supervise. And I'm going to make sure everything gets done properly. And they, and they would say to you, like, well, what's your role? I'm, I'm what's called quality control. I'm trying to train you in the future of the world. I will be supervisor on all of this, and you'll do the work. And then as soon as the work's done, we'll all go downstairs together and be like, Mom, we're done. We did it. We, we, uh, we made it happen. We did all the things that you expected us to do. That's the, that's the way that this was going. This world was working. These monks, these nuns, these whatever are going to live spiritual lives, and we'll be fine, and they'll cover us in some way. Martin Luther goes, ah, when I read Scripture, I see more of a rejection or a denial of this two-tiered approach to religion, and I see more of an invitation to individual religious discipline. Meaning, in that moment, the world changed. And the thing that you believe right now is that you have, right now, most of us, even if you're not really religious, like somebody bribed you to come to church today, you believe that churches are for people who individually come and have the individual decision to make decisions for themselves to live lives of morals and ethics and do good and be good people, right? It's not like you you can come in here and be like, if you guys could just be good for me, I'm gonna go out. I got a crazy week this week and uh, uh, I need you to be really good in my place for me. Nobody believes that anymore. The reason you don't believe it is because 500 years ago, somebody posted a a thing on on the door that says that's broken system. That's not how it works. When I read the scripture, each individual is, is, has a, a, a need to respond to it from themselves through activities like personal disciplines and personal um, standards of morality and ethics in this way. Religious devotion became a personal endeavor. It became a personal discipline. And verses... Specifically in the area of vocation, verses like Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Listen, I've done uh, several series on work um, as in the life of this church because I think it's, so, it's such a huge thing. Whenever I talk about it, people listen and love it because a lot of your job, from what, a lot of the work that you do feels non-transcendental. It feels like boring. It feels monotonous. It feels like this nothing changes. I just come in and I punch a clock. And I, when I graduated college, I thought, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be like, have this huge impact on the world. And then you move to Richland and you start working at PL and you're like, oh, I'm not. I'm just punching a clock. Like the most exciting thing about your job is if I can figure out how I can work the vacation days so that I could take the Friday off, but then also take the Thursday off, I could have five days off. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like that's the thing that you get excited about in, in today. And you're like, the fact that you just said it, I'm doing that next week. I had somebody come up in between services and goes, yeah, that's like, I, I spend half my day. Anyways, I, I should, anyways, I gotta move on. That's so exciting to me, right? That's not, but, it's, but you, know, you know in your core that that's not right. That that's not, not, not what it should be. 
And so this phrase, I want to read to you a, a, a passage that Paul wrote to a church in Colossae, a, a Christian community trying to make sense of what it means to live in Christ, what it means to live out the principles of Jesus' teaching and his ethics and all that kind of stuff. And in this, he writes this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. This phrase makes it to every series about work or vocation or jobs or anything like that that I ever do because it's so, empower- it's so powerful. Whatever it is that you do, I don't know what you do. I don't, it doesn't matter what you do. You work at it with all your heart as if working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a re- reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So if you're a scientist, you do it as unto the Lord. If you're a carpenter, you build houses for the Lord. I wrote in here because I was in that mindset of 500 years ago. If you're a cobbler, and none of you are cobblers, I know that, but that's okay. If you're a cobbler, you make shoes for the Lord. If you're a baker, cool it with all the seeds on the outside of bread. Nobody actually likes all of that. We're not birds. Why don't you make some with potato flour and buttermilk for the Lord. That's what you should do. Do it as if working for the Lord. So in the midst of this reform from a spirituality standpoint, all of a sudden work becomes something. Devotion can become something internalized, personalized for me. At its heart, reform becomes a drive to make over a whole society to higher standards rooted in the conviction that God is sanctifying us anywhere and everywhere. It's not just the monks in the monastery who God works through. He works through me, even in my menial job that means for me, many times, nothing. But I can do it differently. I can do it. I can bring in that and say, you know what? I don't work for you, boss. I mean, I know you signed my paychecks, but the reason I'm doing this is because it's different. I do it with a different motivation moving in this way. So there's this raising up of the average layperson in this community, in the world at this time. Higher standards, higher expectations. You've been okay with other people doing the heavy lifting, but no longer. You now have a personal responsibility with this. Now, if you've ever worked in a workplace environment where for many years it was kind of laissez-faire, anybody got to do whatever they wanted, and all of a sudden you got a new boss, a new supervisor, somebody bought out the company, and there's a new kind of structure, and there's a new sheriff in town, and in this, if we're going to grow this company, there's going to be some standards operating procedures that are going to be a little bit more... Uh, uh, cumbersome, a little bit more the red tape you're going to have to work with because we need this to survive and to thrive as a company. And in the company that you had previously worked for, the things that you, it was just kind of like whatever. And now all of a sudden there's a rising of expectations, a rising of standards, uh, uh, operating procedures. And it can go one of two ways. You can either really love it and be like, finally, finally, I have watched so many people take advantage of this broken vacation system and I'm covering their butts, and I'm trying to be a good employee and good ethics, and I'm trying to make sure, and I would love it for us to now have to fill out a form and get it approved, because so-and-so has been taken off whenever they want to, and I feel like I'm getting screwed in the whole process, right? So you either love it or you hate it. It's like this ripple effect. If you've ever thrown a rock in a lake, right? There's like this ripple both ways. It can be either for it, it can make it, it can call people to a higher standard of living, or you can make it nearly impossible for them. That's what takes place in this, in this scenario. There are people who rose to the occasion and loved the idea that when I do work, whatever it is that I do, I'm doing it as unto the Lord. And there are people who go, oh, I liked it better when I could do whatever I wanted and you guys did all the heavy lifting for me in this way. And so it became a 
part of the process where the Protestant Reformation drove people towards a higher standard of expectations. Charles Taylor goes on to write this, by railing against vice and cranking up the terrifying visions of damnation, Protestant preachers effectively prepared the desertion of a good part of their flock to humanism. That's why you see a lot of times in the, some of the, um, uh, the, the systems coming out of this, a, a higher approach towards the justice of God, a higher uh, approach towards if you do good things, you will be rewarded. And if you do bad things, phew, bad news for you. There are things coming up that are not Good, we're trying to call you to be better. And so in order to do that, sometimes we're gonna have to use manipulation and fear to get you out of that, which then again drives a wedge between both of these things. And, you, and, and listen, you, you know this. You've experienced this. Some of you grew up in a youth group that was like this. You went to a summer camp where it was really hot, kind of like this theater, and there was somebody like me, but with a more passionate voice and talking about all the good things and bad things and all kinds of verses, and you're like, I'm, I'm away from mom and dad, and this is, it's summer camp, and it's like, like this, there's like a spiritual sense of all of this thing, and that he's up there or she's up there saying, you're either in or you're out. You gotta be hot or you gotta be cold, because if you're lukewarm, God spits you out of his mouth. So listen, it is either Third Eye Blind or DC Talk. You pick right now. <laughs> Who's going to be your band, right? That's the childhood we grew up in. You're like, I'm burning these CDs. I'm getting them out of here. I'm doing this thing. I'm going to be all, well, here's what happened. Either you walked away or you doubled down, but there was no standing in the middle. You walked away and said, fine, not for me. Like, I love Thread Blind. I'm out. So, or you're like, good, I will burn these. I'll do this. I'm, I'm all in. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm great. I'm in. And you took on this idea of a, um, a personal devotion to uh, its next level. And you begin to say, no, this is personal. This is about me. This is for us. So listen, this is happening corporately in this world. All of a sudden, what people did was a spiritual endeavor. And if that's a spiritual endeavor, then many of them begin to discover that what the church defined as sacred and profane, which profane just sometimes means, uh, we think about it in terms of profanity, right? But that's not what it means. It's basically mean this is sacred and this is not sacred. The church had this power monopoly on what they determined this was. And now this Reformation language is coming out going, nah, there's, the church doesn't have the authority to do that. Everything is now sacred. Everything can be sacred. Your job can be sacred. Whatever it is that you do can be sacred in this way. So therefore, it's going to change the way that you do things. If the world is going to be ordered, we got to do it. We got to do it ourselves. It involves a rage for order. Now, what I do has a religious significance. So I'm going to make sure things make sense. I'm going to take my knowledge, my know-how, my talents, my abilities, my job, and I'm going to make sense of the world in which we live. So the reason, I mentioned earlier the subtraction narrative. Then we got science, and science kind of like exercised all this need for like the deity stuff. What's the ironic, the the complexity that we fail to see, because it sounds too simple. The complexity that we fail to see is that there is an irony involved in this. The problem with such a story is it fails to account for the important historical reality that it was precisely Christians who were exhibiting a new interest in creation and a new interest in in nature for theological reasons. 
This is the crazy part about this. In this world, there is an advancement in science done by scientists who believed that they were doing something for the sake of their creator. Let's discover how this works because it speaks to the greatness of who it was created by. Let's discover the how in this thing. So to simply say science ruined religion fails to take into account the irony that the science was motivated by theological reasons. They did this so that they could discover more about who their creator was. And what happened in the process at some point, we got so locked in on how things work, we forgot to ask the question why things work. What's the point of all of this? What's this? Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. We're still discovering how things work. We want to know how, 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 how life was created, how life was formed, how, how something came from nothing. And the transcendent question to that is, well, why any of this? Life computes. Information computes. We became like these it, like organisms of computing information, and, and then all of a sudden we evolved into this thing. Yes, but why? Why, why, why? In the process, even Christians become and became functionally disenchanted. We got caught up in the how things work. The naturalism that is essential to exclusive humanism was first motivated by Christian devotion. Now, here's the deal. That's all very great in terms of, and again, it's an alternative narrative, and I think it makes sense. And now you read it and you go, okay, that's interesting. I've never thought about it in that way before. But what does this mean for me? I got to work tomorrow, like make this practical. Otherwise, if I just closed in prayer, now you'd be like, that was interesting slash weird slash how long is this series? I'll be back right after this series is over. I get it. Maybe this stuff only interests me, but here's, here's, here's the personal application for us. This story sounds familiar because we've all been there. At some point, um, our spirituality became personal for us. You grew up in maybe a household where your parents went to church, and then you had a defining moment, whether it was in high school or college, where you had to decide, is this going to be something that I do because my parents always did it, and that's the household I grew up in, and it was a nature thing for me, or I made the decision for myself. Or maybe for some of you, you did not grow up in a religious household. And the fact that you're in church today makes your parents be like, did we raise you wrong? What's, like, what's going on with this? How, how did this happen? And you decided at one point, I'm going to make decisions for myself about what I believe about the bigger things of life. And so I found a safe community for me to kind of kick the tires about all of this stuff. Bottom line is, for you, it became personal. For you, it wasn't enough to have something, like this two-tiered approach to religion, like my, my parents will be spiritual and then that's gonna kind of cover me and I'm good with that, that's fine. I owned it, I made it myself. And then along with that became this personal devotion. Like you came to a church, you sat in a scenario, a like this person like me and whatever church you grew up in, uh, begin to use verses and in, in teaching series that were far more practical for you, like five steps to make sure that your work is meaningful in your life, right? And, and then you're like, oh, I'm gonna take these down. I'm gonna write this thing down and I'm gonna try harder. And that became the goal for you was a let's figure out what the ethics of what Jesus taught and then I'm gonna try and begin to apply some of those in my life. I may not get all five, I may get four, I may get two. I might be lucky with one and I'm gonna be happy with that. But for us, it became an area of trying harder. And then finally and thirdly, this idea of a rage for order. I, I rewrote it in this way. For us, 
we're trying to make, we like order. We like order in the way of the things that we believe. We crave things that make sense. We crave a God that makes sense. We crave, we crave a life that makes sense. If I'm good, I kind of, if I've tried hard enough, I've made it personal for me, I've tried really hard, I kind of deserve um, what I think I deserve. And when things don't work out in the way that they should in our minds, we, we reject that, we push back on that. We crave order in this way. Our world, and, and when it, if, if that was true, that's a very flat, disenchanted view of religion. I go to church, you reward me with a good life. That like flows. It feels like I know how creation works, again, from the beginning, that Second Peter chapter 3 verse. What goes on has since the beginning of creation, meaning there's a process and an order for which this works. But you guys just sang a song. I don't know if you realized it, but in the, the third song that we sang, the line that kept coming up over and over again, and the line that I remember hearing the song for the first time, and me going, oh, I love this, is a phrase that says, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And maybe for some of you, when you sang it, it wasn't like, I'm not just singing it, like, I came in with some baggage, I came in with some questions, I came in with some doubt, and that is like, something that I can cling to. Listen, it's not verifiable. It's not factual. It is a transcendental statement. It is a statement of hope. I hope that someday heaven makes sense of the hell that I'm currently living through because what I believe and what I'm experiencing aren't matching up. I'm still choosing to believe because in we've all been in those periods of our life where those things aren't matching up, and then we begin to doubt, and then our faith gets a little bit rocked, and then we're not sure what we believe, and then we're all over the place, and now, now the fact that I'm questioning makes me think that it was flimsy in the first place. And then what we don't realize is it hasn't been a faith of transcendence at all. It's been a very disenchanted faith. God's become this cosmic vending machine. I do good things, you give me good things in return. And that's not... That's not transcendent faith. Transcendent faith looks at it and says, I am living with the hope that there is a sorrow, an earthly sorrow, that only a place like heaven or what it's beyond or whatever can ever truly answer this. I believe that your ways are higher than my ways, God. I believe that you know more about this than I know about this. I believe that you don't take advice from me. Here's how you should act as God if you're a good God. When we have doubts about the greatness of God, I don't know if he's able to fix all of this or do any of this, or the goodness of God, maybe he doesn't want to. Songs like that, verses like this, help us move into this mindset where we realize we do crave transcendence. We don't experience it very often. And our natural default is towards a faith that is very programmatic, and it's very, I know what I get. A plus B equals C, Right? And yet, when we brush up against life experiences that don't fall into those categories, what do you do? What do you do with all of that? Does it have to make sense? Is God big enough in your life for it not to? Do you trust him anyways in the process? Our culture went through this. Our world went through this 500 years ago. 
we're still processing through it now. It still speaks to what it means to live in a secular age and what it means to be a person who lives in a secular world. More on that next week. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is for all of us as we go into this next week, a probably, for the most part, pretty disenchanted week. We kind of probably know what to expect. I pray that you would begin to challenge us to be able to see moments of transcendence, to, to not avoid those, but to dive headfirst into them, to be okay with that, to listen to the words of that song. May they resonate in our minds and in our hearts all week long. Do I really believe that? Do I really believe that earth has no sorrow, that heaven can't heal? Are we clinging to the hope of transcendence? Or have we made our faith as flat and as disenchanted as the world that we live in? God, call us to something more. May we respond with the grace and the means necessary to know what to do with what we've heard and the courage to act on it. In your name, amen.